as I, um, I wasn't really sure if I should say this, but I actually think it is going to be helpful that over the last couple of weeks as kind of been on holiday and stuff, I've been having heaps of doubts about God and stuff. Um, yeah, I'm here preaching the Bible because uh, no matter how many doubts I have, I simply cannot escape the fact that Jesus walked the earth and also can't escape the fact that he died and rose again, which means that God has entered the world. And I can't escape the fact that he appointed people to go and tell people about him. And a talk I did last term about Paul, um, I'm pretty, pretty convinced he's an apostle and he's speaking from God. So whatever doubts I've got, uh, they, don't, they don't change the reality of it. But I just thought it's helpful to share that because um, that's what I'm going through and that's what life's like. And um, as I speak, um, I'm going to be praying that God will speak through me. Um, yeah, and um, yeah, that's, that's normal part of Christian life. And so you've got to think through it. I've been reading books. It's been really, actually really good. I've been really encouraged. Let's pray. Father God, thank you that you have broken into this world in Jesus, that you are vindicated, declared him to be your son by raising him from the dead, a fact that's inescapable. Thank you for these documents that we have that must have been written by somebody and that uh, talk about Jesus and that are time and time again proven historically accurate uh, and that are written by people that Jesus told to write, that uh, he told them what was going on and Father, I thank you that you appeared to Paul and turned his life around and give us heaps of reason to trust what he says. And so, God, as we wrestle with some big questions tonight, I pray, please, that you will speak from what I trust is your word. And I pray, please, that we will hear your voice, not mine. And I pray, please, that we will be changed. I pray that tonight people might become Christians. I pray, please, that tonight uh, our own goals and ambitions in life would be rearranged. I pray, please, that you'll get more glory through tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the doubts that I have been having is kind of looking at the world. I don't know if you felt this, but I'm like, what is going on? Has anyone else felt this? Like uh, people getting their heads cut off in Syria, planes getting shot down in Ukraine, um, another plane just completely vanishing, a disease called Ebola in Africa just taking heaps of lives. A guy in year nine Facebooked me and said someone should do a talk at either Youth on War. Like, and I was like, what do you mean? He's like, ISIS, and how does God see it? And I was like, I'm kind of with you there. I look at all this stuff, and it all seems so chaotic, and I, you know, people say God's in control, and I'm like, all right, God, if you're in control, what are you doing? Like, Do you have a plan with all this? And then I come to a passage like the one we've just read, and I find, and this is the first point, that God is a God with a plan. It's something that actually screams out of this passage that the true and living God is a God with a plan. Now, I've heard uh, that sometimes the ladies prefer a man with a plan. Ladies, tell me if this is true. But uh, apparently, sometimes, and guys, you might want to know this, apparently, guys, you are more attractive if you're going somewhere in life. Okay? Is that true? Ladies? A very deep-voiced lady over there. You're not just wearing your Bart Simpson underpants, bouncing from one Call of Duty game to the next. Not that there's anything wrong with those things. I've just heard, I'm just passing on. If you know where you're going, the ladies prefer it, if you're a, a man with a plan. And all over this passage, it, it's clear that God is a God with a plan. 
So have a look at verse number one. It says that Paul is an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Verse 5 says that Christians are adopted into God's family in accordance, it says, with his pleasure and will. A lot of people walking around. Um, I'm sure they got good reasons, but if you, like, if you could stay sitting, that's better for the speakers, kind of like, hmm. Uh, or what about, it's also better for you. Anyway, no, I'm not, sorry, not at you. There's a lot of people walking around. Actually, yeah. This won't come out of my time, right? If you need to go to the toilet, I know most of us can sit through a two-hour movie, because most people do, um, so we can probably sit through the rest of this. Anyway, there we go. Um, what about verse 11? Have a look at verse 11. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. At least three times there, it's clear from just that verse, God is a God with a plan. He's an intelligent God with desires and purposes and decisions and plans. And all through this passage, you get a picture that kind of says every single little detail that happens is all based on God's plan. In fact, that's what verse 11 says. It says that he works out everything. Everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. And I think actually that's pretty comforting to know. When things are looking pretty bad, it's good to know God has a plan. And whatever this thing is, that's not outside of his plan. Your HSC is not outside of his plan, if that's something you're stressing about. He's at work here and now, and, and whatever it is that happens, this is part of his plan. But that raises questions, doesn't it? As I look at the chaos in the world, I mean, that, that just causes me to ask, God, if you do have a plan, what is it? What are you doing? And that's where verses 8 to 10 are so interesting. Because they tell us that, this is point number two, God has told us his plan. So look at verse number 8. Halfway through the verse there, it says that, with all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure which he purposed in Christ. Now that's pretty cool, isn't it? It starts by saying there that God did this with all wisdom and understanding. So God didn't make a mistake when he did this. He was smart about it. He was intelligent. In fact, yeah, it says he did it with all wisdom. So a big fancy word for that is omniscient, omni, all, scient, niscient, scient, knowing, all knowing, which means something you may not have thought of, if God played who wants to be a millionaire, he would win every single time. In fact, it would be impossible for anyone to ask a question that he would get wrong. God has all wisdom. And I actually think that that's part of the reason why we sometimes find it so hard to trust that God does have a plan. Because he is all-knowing and we are, well, sometimes pretty far from it. <laughs> um, so there are actually some pictures of that big picture that, or some parts of that big picture that we don't actually see. The, some parts that God sees that we can't. It's almost like um, God has the box that the puzzle came in. It's like this... Um, 10 billion piece puzzle and you in your life get to see about 80 of the pieces 
God's got the back of the box. In fact, he designed the back of the box with a picture on it of what it's supposed to look like. And you look at your like 80 pieces and you kind of think to yourself, God, I don't get how all these pieces fit together. What are you doing? And he says, don't worry. I've got a plan. I see the big picture. I have all wisdom. But we don't. Anyway, let's keep reading verse 8 because it says something that he did with all of his complete wisdom. Verse number 8 and 9. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will. So what's he done? He's revealed to us a mystery. See, for thousands of years, people have been asking God this same question. God, what are you doing? And for thousands of years, there were just hints about what God was up to. But now he's actually made it known what he's doing. Now, do you realize just how big what I just said is? God has let us in on the secret of what he's up to. He's let us in on the plans that he's made. And he didn't need to do that, did he? But God has told us. Now, some people get pretty into rumors about the next iPhone. Okay, There's like whole websites online dedicated to what the next iDevice is going to be. They've got dodgy photos from China, YouTube clips, the lot. It's like some mystery that they're like desperate to know about. And I would never have looked at any of these websites. I only heard about them. Okay, And I think it's pretty... I think it's actually a pretty small mystery compared to what God is planning for the whole world. I once got distracted surfing the net. I got like distracted for like two hours watching videos made by people who think that the terrorist attacks like 9-11 aren't really terrorist attacks, but instead they're part of like some big conspiracy between all the governments around the world and the banks and the big companies. And these people make... YouTube videos, and they go and stand in front of buildings with big banners saying things like, what about building three? And they genuinely believe that there's a big secret about what's going on in the world. Now, I don't buy what they're saying. I guess who really knows? But I'll tell you one thing we do know. There's no secret. There's no big mystery anymore about what God is up to in the world. God has told us his plan. Now, what do you guys think that that means for you and I? Well, it means that God intends for us to know what he's up to, doesn't it? God wants us to know his plan for the world. But why? Well, one reason is pretty clear in this actual passage. He wants us to know so that we can praise him for it. So have a look at verse number three. It actually starts, this whole section... Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why is Paul writing all of this stuff? He actually wants to motivate the people reading this letter to praise God. Paul's being a worship leader. He's trying to lead the people that he's writing to, to worship God. He's using a a pen or whatever they used, rather than a microphone, um, rather than a guitar. But he's actually trying to stir people to praise God, which is why, by the way, we don't call the band who uh, do a great job, but we don't call them the worship leader. Um, why? Because if they're the worship leader, then what does that say about what I'm doing? Am I not leading worship? Well, I hope that you guys are worshiping as you hear what God has to say. And what about the person who read the Bible and taught as the MCs? And well, all of us, as we motivate people to praise God, are worship leading. 
And that's what Paul's trying to do. But as he does that, he's not doing something that's out of line. In fact, it's right in step with what God's ultimate purpose is. And you can see that in verses 5 and 6. So verse 5 says that those of us who are Christians were predestined to be adopted by God into his family. But then look at verse number 6, which tells us why it all happened. It says, to the praise of his glorious grace. It's so that God would be praised, specifically so that he'd be praised for how incredible his grace is. Now, grace is God choosing not to give me what I deserve, which would be punishment for my sins. And so grace is God, instead of that, bringing me into his family, giving me eternal life with him forever in heaven. And why did God do verse 5, predestine me and adopt me into his family? Because he loves me? Yes, that's, yes, that's true. But there's a bigger reason. Because it would help me and you and the whole universe see how good his grace is. It's so that he would be praised. And we'll look at one more verse that says this. Um, we already looked at verse 11 and it says how God chose us according to his plan. But why did he choose us? Well, verse 12 gives us the answer. In order that we who were the first to hope Sorry, in order that we who were the first to put our hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. So that tells you what's the purpose of his plan. The purpose of his plan is in order that we would bring praise to his glory. And if you like alliteration, P's, you could say the purpose of his plan is praise. So all of this is so that you and I and the universe would see just how good he really is and praise him for us. Everything that happens is happening to form part of this picture, this 10,000 billion piece picture. And it's happening to build the sort of picture that will bring more praise to God than any other sort of picture would. That's what's behind the plan. And I think if you're understanding what this is saying, you might be um, starting to have questions in your mind um, Isn't God being selfish? Isn't he being arrogant? And I'm not going to have time in this talk to explain why I'm I'm convinced he's not being those things. I've wrestled with this exact question and I've come to the conclusion that it's actually loving of God to make this his purpose. But if that's something you're wrestling with, your, your question is that, then I'd encourage you to have a chat to your leader. Come and find me later tonight. But for now, we're just asking this question. Why has God told us this plan? And we've seen the answer. What is it? The purpose of the plan is praise. So the purpose of him telling us the plan is probably the same thing. It's so that we would praise him for it. It's so that we would see how good his plan is, and so we'd praise him for being such a great God. And so let me ask you this. Are you a person who spends time praising God in your prayer, in your conversation, Are you a person who likes singing praises to God? I want us, God wants us to be a youth group that likes to sing praises to him. If not, if that's not you, maybe you need to spend some more time looking at God and his plan in his word so that your heart is moved to get in step with the purpose behind the universe and praise him. That's reason number one, I think God has told us his plan. But reason number two, you find out later in the book of Ephesians, It's because we have a role to play in that plan. So I saw this picture on the internet. Can we get it up? There we go. (laughs) That's got to suck, hey? That's got to be out there with the worst work days you could have. 
So I'm getting a lot of calls. Um, Todd, are you here? Can you call Andrew Mitchell? Thanks. That's got to suck. Today, um, my car wouldn't start again. So update on the last time I told you about my car. I put a new engine in. It cost $2,800, which is very close to what the car's actually worth. But I thought it was cheaper to do that than to buy a new one. Um, but maybe not, because today it won't start again. And then bending over to look at, like, under the car, um, my phone was in my pocket, and it, like, must have just bent. No, it's not an iPhone 6. But anyway, it shattered the screen. <laughs> and then randomly, for no reason at all, like, I can't even explain this one, the arm fell off my sunglasses today. <laughs> so I guess I just hope that when I go home, that's not what I find. <laughs> that would be the perfect end, really. Anyway, why am I showing you this picture? Because it shows you what can happen if you don't pay attention to the plan. Okay? Things go pear-shaped. I know it's a loose connection, but things were getting pretty dry in this talk, and I wanted to lighten up a bit. Okay? But a lot of people don't pay much attention to God's plan. I would not want to get to the end of my life and find out that God was heading in one direction, and I was heading in a completely different direction. That's like playing tug-of-war with a tank. At the very least, you're going to feel very foolish. See, God has a part for you and I to play in that plan. He's told us his plan because he wants us to get involved. He wants you to join your little story up with his big story, to use your creativity, your muscles, your vocal cords, your wallet, your ambitions, and all other stuff for his big plan. Now, I think it's actually really cool that God involves us in what he's doing. But to do that, he needs to tell us what he's up to, and that's what he's done. So what is it? What is God's plan? Here's point number three, last point. God's plan is to sum up, summarize, sum up the whole world in Jesus. You can see the answer in verse 10. Actually, let's start reading in verse 9. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ. What is it? To be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment. Okay, what is it? This. To bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. Okay, so what's God doing in the world? Well, when the times reach their fulfillment, in other words, when the time's right, he's going to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. Now, in all honesty, I have really, really struggled to understand what that means. So this talk is probably less finished than it should be because of this exact reason. I spent ages banging my head against the Bible, not literally, but kind of, to, to try and understand what is he saying there. I'll tell you what I can work out for sure. Number one, at the end of the day, God's plan is to make everything about Jesus. So when it says to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ... The under Christ bit there tells me pretty clearly what the focus of the plan is. It's Jesus. The end goal of the plan is to make everything about him. And even just that right there makes a lot of what I do with my life and my time look a bit silly. A lot of the stuff that I do that has nothing to do with Jesus. Because if, if God's plan is to make everything about Jesus, then I can see why a man named John Piper would say something like this. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And actually, a friend of mine was reading this exact verse this week, and for the first time it kind of clicked, whoa, this isn't about me, this is about him. 
That's number one. Number two, this plan, what I can work out, affects every single thing. I was going to say affects every single thing in the universe, but then I realized this is bigger than just the universe. See, it says to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth. Now, sometimes in the Bible, the word heavens can just mean the sky. But as you keep reading in Ephesians, you realize he's actually talking about stuff like angels, demons, all of that kind of stuff. And so God's plan affects every single thing, not only in the universe, but even outside of the universe. And that's where it starts to get a little bit tricky for me. Because he says, bring unity to all these things. And unity kind of makes me think of one big happy family. But in other places, Paul, the guy who wrote this exact thing, says very clearly that some people will go to hell. Satan and demons will be punished. Satan won't end up part of the one big happy family. Paul says that so clearly in other places that makes me think when I get to this word here, the word unity must be meaning something a little bit different. It's a concept that's hard to put into English. But the concept is that God is going to unite all things in Jesus in the sense of bringing them all together. Almost like he's going to wrap them all up into Jesus. It's like everything that exists has a main point. And that main point is Jesus. And at the end of the day, everything will be brought to its main point in Jesus. Now, I find that a hard concept to get my head around. But basically, right now, what we see is a universe that's in chaos. And God's plan is to bring that chaos to order. To restore the harmony to everything. And Jesus will be the focal point and the way that it all happens. Things will be gathered up to Jesus. And they'll be gathered up in Jesus. And they'll be gathered up by Jesus. This disjointed, separated, divergent, fragmented, frustrated world will be brought together. With Christ as the focal point, the glue, the ruler, the boundary, everything. That's God's plan. God the Father has chosen his son, Jesus Christ, to be the one that sums everything up. Okay, I'll try and give you an illustration of this because I think it's a quite a confusing concept using Iraq. Okay, Right now, Iraq... Oh, not that one. Put that back. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> right now, sorry, I, I can see why I did that. Right now, Iraq looks like chaos, doesn't it? Do you guys know who's supposed to be in charge? No. Someone is supposed to be in charge. Half the country don't think they should be, and, and then you've got these terrorists charging around. Now, imagine this. This isn't real, but just imagine. You're in Iraq, and you find out there's a guy. Let's call him Alfred. If, if your name's Alfred, he's the hero in the story, so that's not a bad thing. Okay? Um, now, Alfred legitimately does have the right to be in charge of this country. In actual fact, if you go back far enough, you find that Alfred owns all of the land in Iraq. It was stolen from him way back but he's actually the rightful owner. Now, it turns out that Alfred's actually a pretty good guy. He's not corrupt. He's wise. He's exactly the sort of person you'd want running a country. So you convince him to come back to Australia and replace the lot we've got. No, uh, not that, but actually, that was for you. Um, Actually, it turns out that he really is the rightful ruler of Iraq, okay? He always has been, but most of the country simply ignore him. Okay, now finally... He does decide he's going to restore... Now, there's a, um, I should say, whenever someone gives an illustration, there's always problems with it. This one is, you're kind of like, what's this guy been doing? 
Whereas with God, there's lots of stuff he's been doing. But anyway, put that aside. Finally, this guy decides to restore peace to the land. He comes into the capital city and he proclaims, he's the ruler, he's here. And miraculously, he actually does bring peace to the land. But it happens in one of two ways. Some people recognize that he really is the ruler and they say sorry and they allow him to be their ruler again and he says, I forgive you and have a hug and they become happy members of the society. Good on you, Alfred. Good on you, everyone who did that. But some people give him the finger. I'm not, I almost did it. Some people give him the finger. Take that, Eva Youth. So Alfred takes them down like a ninja warrior, nicely, because he's a nice guy, and he puts them in prison. Okay, so the bad guys are in prison, the good guys are out, or the people that he's kind of, yep, you're back on my team, that's cool. And the country begins to like really get going again, and things are good, and it's the best place in the world to live. Now, that's a far-fetched story, but can you say that in that situation, the country is united in Alfred? Totally. Alfred's a national hero. But what about the people in prison? Well, they actually have been united under Alfred, but in a different sort of way. But the fact is, whether you're a free citizen or in prison, you are in the place you should be in. The chaos has been stopped, and all these things have been brought together, united in Alfred. I hope that gives you some idea of what verse 10 is talking about. It's saying all things are going to be united in Jesus. Lots of people, everybody in fact in this world, has separated themselves from God, the rightful ruler. And the restoring of order for that person, those people, will involve putting them in prison, spiritual prison, you get the metaphor, giving them what they deserve for their rebellion. That would be restoring the order under Christ. And that's the category that you and I are in. Except that God loves the world. And he's worked out a way. This is a, not like last minute thing. He worked it out at the start, verse 3 and 4 and 5 say. But he worked out a way that he could bring us back into a right relationship with him without needing to punish us. He could restore the order and bring us back to him. In fact, verse 7 tells you how. Have a look at verse 7. In him we have redemption. Through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. That is an amazing verse. I memorized this whole chapter when I was in year 12. Uh, and I used to say it like in the shower and stuff. I pinned it up on the shower. And verse 7 always stood out to me. Verse 7 is why I'm a Christian. I am a sinner. I need forgiveness. And in Jesus, we have redemption. That means setting free. We find forgiveness. Forgiveness means God lets our sins go because of what Jesus did on the cross by his blood. And so there are two ways that things get summed up in Jesus. Some things refuse God's offer and they get restored to order by God bringing them to nothing and punishing them under Jesus. But for us humans, this is the offer and he's making it to you tonight and he makes it 
He's been making it through his people down to his centuries. You can be united to me again, God says. In a completely different way to that, you can actually come back to me. You can be forgiven. And you can then be part of that restored world in Jesus. By trusting that message about Jesus, the gospel. So what is God's plan for the world? God's plan is to sum up everything in Jesus. Number one, by punishing evil and making it stop under Christ's rule. And number two, by gathering to himself a people who will live in harmony with him forever. And that tells us what our part is in the plan, doesn't it? Three things. First, come back to... Our part is to come back to Jesus. Because he's who it's all about. You don't want to be found apart from him. Second, our part in it is to take this message out so that other people can come back to Jesus. And third, our part is to be a part of the people that he's already united to himself, the church. And the rest of the book of Ephesians is all about that, the church. I think this is what we're going to look at at FAT next year, the church, because it's such a big thing in the Bible. Not the buildings, The people, the people that God has united, gathered to himself in Jesus, to himself and each other. Now, that means that right now, what we are doing right now in this group of people is right at the core of God's plan for the universe. So I want to just end by coming back to where I started. What do we make of the chaos that we see in the world and on the news? What do, we, what do we do with that? Well, I'll give you some of my thoughts. I think we need to realize that what we see in the Sydney Morning Herald and on Channel 7 News, the real things that are going on in the world, like the really significant things, don't make it onto those news shows. Okay, So flick this up, um, slides, guys. This is something that um, I saw online. Pastors who stay, this is about um, like Syria and Iraq where the Islamic State is. Pastors who stay in war-torn areas find great harvest. And I've highlighted a bit down the bottom. For years, they, this is talking about pastors, have prayed for a spiritual breakthrough and now they're seeing it. Their friends and neighbours have never been so open to the gospel. Um, basically, you've got countries that have just been very closed-minded about Jesus. And only now they're starting to open their minds. And it doesn't say there, and maybe we won't find out until we get to heaven. But who knows how many people are coming back to Christ because of this. Now, we don't really know, and it's a, I mean, it's still a tragic situation, and there's more that could be said about it. But to see that the, the really significant events of history are not the, the wars and the kind of um, achievements and politicians, and, but underneath God moving all that around, there's a message going out, and more people than ever before are becoming Christians today. Billions around the world are Christians. Thousands, tens of thousands, more than that, become Christians every single day. This message is going out. That's the really significant story, but you never hear about it. That's what God's doing in the world. See, um, and we'll see this in Acts. There's like a group of Christians and um, the authorities start to persecute them and, and make them suffer. 
And so they decide to get out and they scatter. But what does that do? They just take the message further. And that starts in Jerusalem and then it goes to Samaria and then Judea and then to um, Ephesus. And then it works its way up through the Middle East into Europe and then across to England. And then fast forward a few centuries because uh, this will take forever otherwise. And, and there's like a need to start like a, a big prison, a really big prison, a long way away. And so in England, some guys decide, well, if they're going to do that, we should send a guy with them who's a Christian. So they send a guy called Richard Johnson, and he goes and brings this message to Australia. And then that starts in Sydney, and the first sermon in Australia was preached in Sydney, and that message started to spread. And 18 years ago, God began a work here on the Central Coast. Well, no, I should say that differently, because there were churches here before that. God was already working, but this work... God began on the Central Coast 18 years ago, and it started really small. It started just with this beating of the hearts of certain people who knew that there was a need to make disciples of Jesus on the Central Coast. And so let's go to this photo. This is like one of the first let's go. Yeah, this is one of the first church weekends away. And I want to point out, it's not big, and there's a guy there right in the front. I don't know what he's doing. That's Daniel Godden. And then there's Luke Charters uh, sitting three rows back on the right of that photo. And at that time, very few people imagined what God might do. Now, EV Church has six services on a, sun, on a weekend. Thousands of people gather week by week because they love Jesus. There's church planners and missionaries being sent out. Now, I think this stuff can become background noise, but it's helpful to remember and keep it central in our day-to-day because we've seen this passage, it's central to God's plan. Um, See, what happened is, um, as far as I know, Daniel Godden was the first person in EV Youth. I think it might have just been him. Maybe there's a few others, but basically just him. A few years later, next photo, this was taken at 24-7. Now, this looks creepy, like I've stalked Daniel Godden, but I I promise you that these photos were just all together. That's Daniel Godden again, okay? He's now in about year six, maybe year seven in Bummer or uh, what, what's now called um, EV Kids, and, or he's in 24-7. I think he might be in 24-7 as about a year seven kid. And obviously there's a few more people there. Next photo. This is the year I started youth group. I'm not there, but they had their end of year party. It was a formal theme, uh, so everyone got dressed up. But that's the whole youth group when I started youth group. It's... Um, it, it all fit very comfortably in a surf club. But year after year, what's happened is you guys have taken the gospel to your mates, told them about it, that you, people have been becoming Christians. One of the guys um, in the youth group around this time um, was invited by his mate Simon, and he became a Christian, and now he's on staff here. His name's Adrian Haynes, and he's working in schools, getting the gospel out in schools. Daniel Godden, who I showed you there, ended up my pastor. And the stuff that I'm teaching you right now, he really gave me a fire for it. He called it the mainstream of history. That is, the mainstream of history isn't um, all like the, the political powers and all that. The mainstream of history is the gospel going out. So Dan taught me that. And Dan then left and started a church down in Wollongong where they're seeing people become Christians. And his mate Grant went with him. Grant's an engineer and works nine to five as an engineer, 
but he serves in the church. I want you to know that so that you don't think you have to be a church plan to do things for God. No, Grant's doing it there. He's one of the heroes as well. We, we've seen so much growth. We've got so much to give thanks to God for, but this is so small. There's 40,000 teenagers on the Central Coast. Like, just imagine if each person in this room brought one friend to know Jesus in the time we're in youth group. We would double in size, but we'd still be far from reaching the 40,000. Guys, we're part of an awesome work of God, but there's so much more that we might see happen. And I'm so excited. If that was the first guy, Dan, if that was the first guy in Eva Youth, if that's true, or he's one of the first, just seeing what God's doing through him, and I look around now and I just go, what's going to happen through the people in this room? So I'll end with some, some applications, some take-homes. Number one, you know what God's doing in the world. It's all about Jesus. You'd be crazy not to start now. I hear some people say, like, I want to be a missionary when I'm older, and that's great. But are you a missionary now? Because if you're not trying to evangelize the people around you now, what makes you think that you will then? That means things like Double Up and Life Uncut, be bringing your friends to it. Invite them. We're going to give you some training, as Todd mentioned, in how to talk to your friends as well. So if they won't come, you can at least try and share this message with them. And the last thing I want to say is, what are you doing with your money? So the next two weeks in your G-teams, you'll be hearing about this thing called EV Grow. Basically, your parents and a whole bunch of other people in the church have chucked in a bunch of money to get this building, that building, the, the land and all that. Um, but we've still got like a bank loan that needs to be paid. And I don't know if we've ever asked you guys, maybe we have, I can't remember, but we're asking you guys if you want to, and that's key to get, if you want to, there's no pressure in this, you can have a chance in putting in some money to keep to pay this off so that we can keep preaching the gospel here for years and years and years to come. There you go. So there's something to think about, talk to your leader about. Uh, we're deliberately not asking you to do it like now in an emotional snap decision. We want you to think about it. And as well as that one-off thing that you can ask your G-team leader about, every week as the bags go around, that money goes to Flipside, where the gospel goes out to five different high schools on the Central Coast and teenagers hear about Jesus. God, what are you doing in the world? He's working to bring people to know him, and one day he's going to unite everything in Jesus.